This episode of The Moment is sponsored by DraftKings. Start this football season by winning $2 million. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Use code MOMENT to play free for a shot at $2 million in the week one $10 million millionaire maker. Go to DraftKings.com and by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payments solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more, and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to BraintreePayments.com slash moment. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, we're doing this today in a trailer on the set of... Uh, the show I'm working on, Billions, uh, the show for Showtime. Haven't recorded in the trailer before. I think it's going to be okay, although I'm sitting in an odd posture to do an interview. I, I have a genetic memory of being in a trailer. So, <laughs> a genetic memory? <laughs> yeah, my people live in trailers. Well, sure. That's yes. I've, you've written about it. It's not just genetic. I mean, you've you've written about it a lot. Um, uh, this is a different kind of trailer. Yes. No. This is a this is a movie star trailer. But um, my guest today is. Uh, in a very, very uh, select company. She is one of uh, the only people to be in the, the band, the Rock Bottom Remainders. Yeah. We're, we're known uh, not for our talent. I have always wanted to talk to somebody in that band. Well. Though the person I wanted to talk to was Stephen King, so. Well, of course. <laughs> Sadly. I'm not as tall as Stephen, but I, I'll represent for him. You can represent for the whole. Yes, exactly. For the whole group. Exactly. Uh, I'm sitting here with Mary Carr, who is... Um, Simply one of the great living writers of our time. Uh, it's not just, I'm not the only one who says that. In fact, people like George Saunders say that, and uh, and Stephen King, and Lena Dunham. And uh, Mary, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, compliment. Yeah, man, it's so, uh, it's so my pleasure. I've been, you know, I want to say up top, as I was just saying to you, that uh, you have a memoir coming out, or a book coming out on memoir called Art of the Memoir. The Art of Memoir. That's the right. Art of Memoir. That's it. And I haven't been able to read the whole book yet because I just got it yesterday. And you're filming a television show. And I'm filming. But I was incredibly eager to read it, and I'm still eager to read it. My wife, Amy, who's the harshest critic I know, um, I think has read it twice already, Even because you gave it to her like a week ago. She read it twice. You're lying. She started quoting passages to me last night. I love that girl. Me too. Um, My sister from another mister. And she's a great writer also. But I, I... I started reading the book, and I was struck by something right in the beginning, and I just want to read this out loud, um, because it raised some questions for me, and I thought it, it offered some insight into you, and you say this. Um, Recently, a friend I teach with talked me down off the ledge about this project, the project being um, Art of Memoir, writing a book about right. memoir, right? Right. If I could just fuck up your rhythm of what you wrote by no, talking no, in the no, middle of ahead. it. Um, by reminding me that I've spent decades talking with joy to students about memoir, what I really bring to the classroom is having cherished the form as long and as hard as anybody. In 1965, I wrote, when I grow up, I will write one half poetry and one half autobiography. And as a strange child, reading the sagas of Helen Keller and Maya Angelou, I just felt less lonely. In some animistic way, I believed they were talking, as my toddler son once said, of the infuriatingly saccharine Mr. Rogers, only to me. A first-person coming-of-age story, putatively true, never failed 
to give the child me hope that I could someday grow up and get out of the mess I was in, which was reading hours per day in a state of socially sanctioned disassociation to try and fence myself off from the chaos of my less-than-ideal household. If Angelou, born black in pre-civil rights Arkansas, and poor, blind, deaf Keller, each made it out of their own private hells to become that most exalted of creatures, a writer, maybe I could too. Every memoirist had lived to tell the tale, and that survival usually geezed me with hope, as if with a hypodermic. A comparable-sounding novel just couldn't infuse me the same way. And So shameful to admit. Well, why? Well, because, you know, it's a low-rent form, let's face it. It's like, it's it's trashy. It's tra- I mean, it's, you know, it's an episodic... You know, a novel is an exalted thing with this formal history and formal complexity. And, and a memoir, you know, it's Tuesday, then it's Wednesday, then it's Thursday. And, you know, I mean, it's it's episodic. It's less... In literary circles, it's, it's you know, it's like the difference in being a pole dancer and dancing for the New York City band. Well, you say that, and you're incredibly self-effacing, but you do have that combination that great artists often have, which is total humility and then also complete arrogance of purpose. First, the arrogance of purpose, Brian. That's what I'm shopping for. <laughs> That's what you need for television. I mean, you don't need it for this. No, I mean, because you will, yes, you'll use a word like gotta and spell it G-O-T-T-A, but you'll also use animistic. And you will, um, I think, it feels to me like this is, um, this that, that hunk is like um, the mission statement that explains the three memoirs. I, I, I don't know where I got that. Like, my sister and I once tried to figure out what memoirs I had read. I was 10 years old. What did I read? I mean, Helen Keller. I mean, that's I remember reading Helen Keller, but Maya Angelou hadn't come out yet. She came out in, like, 1971. I remember, because I was a junior in high school, and I read that book. And I thought, you can write about, you can write about this, you know? Even, even when, you, when you write about yourself, though, like I'm thinking at the beginning of Cherry, and... When I say arrogance, it's not an unearned arrogance, but there's this moment in Cherry where you're looking at your dad and you just know that nothing he says can, you're not going to allow anything to penetrate you and you're going to move on. And you had this, that's why I say arrogance of purpose. It feels to me like you had this uh, sense that there was a mission for you. Doesn't every writer have that? How, How did you find it? Mainly by not having any place to go back to. I mean, the town I grew up in, I swear to God, when I was little, was voted one of the 10 ugliest towns in the country to do business by Business Week. And the mayor of this little crappy, you know, swampy backwater um, had a party in the fire station to celebrate. Like, we'd been in Business Week, even though we were in for being ugly, you know? It's like... <laughs> Everyone had a... They celebrated. <laughs> we said... Ce- you like you'd made it. We'd made it into Business Week, you know? It was like a big moment for my people. So, um... So it wasn't like I was going to go back home and work in the refinery, you know, or get married to a pipe fitter and move into the trailer. I would have, you know, they would have found me hanging from a cypress tree. How'd you know? Because people always ask this, and this book is about, uh, is a, a recipe or is an approach to, to doing this thing. What made you know or think that you could really do it? I didn't. You know what I really thought, Brian? I'll tell you, this is a true story. I mean, I'll confess this only to you. I've never told anybody this. I really never have. I thought I would marry a great writer. 
and be like Vera Nabokov. I mean, the idea of that, because I'm so terrible at being married, it's so obvious. You take one look at me and it's like, she's been engaged nine times. <laughs> she's been married once, it didn't last. You know, uh, but I really did. I just thought if I could just hang out with a bunch of writers. That was what I wanted. Like, I didn't even, in a way, um, I, I, in a way, I was incredibly modest. I, I didn't feel I had much talent. Did you thought the writing would maybe be your passport to be able to be around writers? Yes. Yes. So that, like, I would read all the books, and then all the cool guys who read Nietzsche would, like, want to kiss me. You know, it's, and like take me out and like because you, you mean those. Unfortunately, those were the guys you wanted to kiss those you, not those guys, other guys. Yeah, right. Not the guys. You know, who are going to do television shows. No, the guys who are reading Nietzsche, like those guys. Although you were reading Nietzsche, and look at you, I, you did, Brian. Was yeah, but I can't say that I was. I, was uh, I don't know that I was understanding it though. You probably actually understood. No, it. I don't think so. I so I skimmed. You know, I can't. I'm not going to really try to own that. But you know, even as you talk now, um, and and tell the story about yourself. You do tell it with a narrative thread. You know, you just see things that way, it seems. That's the way my mind works. Well, I grew up, you know, I had this daddy who was this, you know, oil, half Indian oil worker dude who was a kind of a gambler, barroom brawler. He was a great barroom storyteller. So, um, and he dragged me around shooting pool and with all his hunting and drinking buddies in the Liars Club. So I think, but I also think there's an oral tradition in most of the South, certainly in East Texas where I grew up. You know, people just telling stories, you know. Being around that just like somehow lit, lit this some kind of fuse in you to do it. Well, also, I think um, Alan Grossman was at Brandeis when you were at Tufts. I don't know if you remember him. A great poet, recently died. Um, But I remember an interview he did once at Harvard, and he said, you know, I don't write to immortalize myself. I write to immortalize my beloveds. Yeah, it's beautiful. Isn't that great? So so I, I kind of wanted, when I was a little kid, even though I lived in this freakish world. I knew it wasn't my world. I knew I wasn't going to land there. My mother lived in New York and I had these, I did, I had these aspirations. You know, I read T.S. Eliot very young and I would say indeed in like the eighth grade and people would beat the shit out of me. Well, that's what I was going to say. What was it like to be a book? Like, I mean, you write about it. Your your three memoirs, uh, Liars Club, Lit, and Cherry, you write about this whole journey that you Yeah, I mean, took. people imagine, people look at me now and because I say you know, motherfucker a lot, or I guess I can't say that on the you radio. Can say, of course, you can say motherfucker okay. on this. Because I say motherfucker a lot, they think um, I'm tough. You know, I was the pussy. You know, I... I, I in, I'm, you mean in East Texas, you're in the East, pussy. I'm a candy ass. I mean, they beat the ever-loving shit out of me. I mean, I'm not... I'm not the tough girl. Yeah, I can shoot pool, I can shoot straight, I can gut a squirrel. You know, it's terrible. There's this Michelle Shock song, and, and Michelle Shock, who... Uh, said horrible things last year um, about uh, gay people in a way that made me. She's, she's one of my favorite songwriters who ever lived, say? but I won't. What did she say? From I'm the sure. stage, she no. said, God, you know, God hates. I think she said, uh, you know, God hates gay people Wasn't in certain she gay? ways. Yeah, she went, absolutely went through a period of time where she was gay. Wasn't she, she gay when she first was. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Yes, I mean, she certainly wrote and sang about that stuff. But on Short Sharp Shocks, which is one of the great albums, she has the song Memories of East Texas, and she talks about growing up there. And she grew one, up in the county where my daddy grew up. One of, oh, really? Yes. Yeah, Jasper one of, County. One of the key lines in it or was... Or Coons County, one of them. That, um, and I, I thought, 
that it has a real kinship with some of your work. There's this line in it, and with what you just said, I hadn't thought of it until you said right now, East Texas, but I think the line is uh, about all the other kids, and um, they did not have time for a girl who'd seen the ocean. Oh, that's so nice. And it, yeah, that's a great record. I love that. I love. I loved her stuff too. Right, that first record was amazing. Right? Yeah, incredible. Short. Yeah, it was. Um, well, there was so this can, did, Texas Campfire tapes, and then Short Sharp Shock was the one that you would have loved. That was the one that. I, but did she get Jesus and decide she hates gay people? Yeah, I mean, you got Jesus and decide, and you didn't decide you. Hate oh, I gay love people. gay people. I'm like big. I think Jesus. I mean, look at Jesus hung out with whores and you know ne'er do wells, tax collectors, you know criminals. I mean, those are my people. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I wouldn't be a snarky, obnoxious atheist if all the Jesus people were like you. So. I know. Well, they, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's organized religion that I think is troubling. But I, I, I want to get into that with you because I want to know how you reconcile. I mean, how do you reconcile your faith with organized religion and, and what it stands for? It's sort of like this. Here's the way I look at it. America does a lot of stuff that I don't like. This country. This government. A lot of things. I consider myself an American. I vote. I participate in the process. Uh, I don't approve of a lot. I'm not going to decamp and move to France. Um, okay, so that's your answer. The question is, is you're an American and that you feel uh, it's and it's also and in the same way you're Christian, but and you don't. That doesn't mean you also, have. So let me say this. I mean, let me say this as a I'm not just a Christian. Yeah, you're a Catholic. I'm a Catholic. A late in life Catholic. Yeah, I I'm not even a cradle Catholic. I'm not a victim. I'm a volunteer. I went out and, and, you know, got baptized when I was 45 years old. I was a college professor. You know, a lot of idiots are college professors. Never mind. Um, so there is a lay tradition in Catholicism of people working with the poor. Jerry Berrigan go, went to my, just died, goes to my church in Syracuse. So the, the idea of people being called to work for the poor. And I just want to say, for all my liberal, super liberal, secular, I don't believe in anything because religion is corrupt friends, almost zero of them do charity work. They write checks, but in terms of showing up at the soup kitchen, doing that stuff where you're down in there with the dirty, messy poor, my church has like a natural funnel to go do that stuff. So not that my church is the only answer. I don't think that. I think the Holy Spirit assumes many forms, including secular forms. So I think if you're, as the Pope says, if you're a good person, I don't think you need to go sign on the dotted line. Yeah, I, I can't argue with anything that you just said. I, other than um, I know plenty of secular, uh, non-religious people who get right down in there with the really? poor, but that might be because of, you know, um, you know better people. people than that, I well, do. it just could be because <laughs> my, my friends all suck. You know, I mean, some of maybe some of my actor friends have been court ordered to do it. Yeah, so, exactly, exactly. I, mean, I don't know if that counts or not, but they're in there. I mean, the point is, is that right. they're in there if doing it. Mandated, they're mandated or not, they're in there by the side of the road exactly, helping. Exactly. Um, but but I do think that it, it's true that lately um, atheists actually feel like we have. Uh, act as as though we are the only people who have the right to the high moral ground. Yeah, exactly. And I don't like being associated with that at all. Hawking. I think think it doesn't matter. I don't want to be one of those people. I don't want to... I would like to uh, exercise the... uh, like sort of maximum tolerable... just under the maximum tolerable amount of snarkiness. (laughs) That seems... (laughs) That's right. Just under under the maximum tolerable amount of snarkiness about 
atheism. But I want to get back to you. And okay, may, uh, let's because, talk about listen, me. Okay. I want to talk about you, but here's what I'm interested in. Okay. This, I was thinking, when I read that hunk of, of yours, and I've read, your, uh, I've read three of your books and a bunch of your poetry, um, I was thinking, when I, but when I read this, this thing where you talk about this young dawning uh, uh, that you had, I thought of two things. I thought of the piece that um, Murakami just wrote as the introduction to his first uh, to his first two novels, which were just republished. I haven't I haven't read it. Where he talks about the blinding moment of insight, and he decided he was going to become a novelist. And then I uh, I was thinking about that Philip Roth piece about twenty years ago in the Times, where he talked about finding a notebook that had the first line of every one of his novels, and. Uh, which, which obviously was fiction, but but this idea that it was buried in there the the whole time. And what is this call to mythologize ourselves? Do you think to have to tell an origin story? Right. Um, well, I think it's to become a human being and to recognize the past with the present. Or for me, um, I needed the money. I mean, <laughs> I'll be quite honest with you. I was too old to pole dance, and and. Uh, when I wrote The Liars Club, and if I'd been employable, you know, at anything other than being a hostess in a restaurant, you know, I, I you know, I, I knew I had always loved memoir. I knew Tobias Wolf. I knew Frank Conroy. I loved Maya Angelou. I Richard Wright. I'd always read all those books. Uh, Michael Hare I'd met, who'd wrote the best book about Vietnam dispatches and part, you know, the voiceover for Apocalypse Now. Yes. Um, so I knew these people, and I thought, well, if I could, I, I dine out on my messed up Texas family all the time. Why can't I do this? And it was really, I didn't. I was living in Syracuse. I just got divorced. I didn't have a car. I needed the money. You were a poet at the time. I was a poet. Yeah, which is uh, recogn- and recognized as an important poet. Well, For, I know that doesn't mean. No, I know that that's not going to buy you even. Uh, you know. Uh, breakfast link at McDonald's, <laughs> but I'm saying <laughs> two slender volumes of verse. You know that you could hear the ping at the bottom of the well when they came out from you know well New Directions. James Lachlan published my second, which was a huge coup, and so I mean I you know I was publishing. I was I had a job as a college professor. I had health insurance. It's not like I was you know scrambling. I was scrambling, but um, but I didn't have a car, and and I wrote this memoir proposal but it it so fell into place it almost feels divine but when you like divinely determined right i didn't remember having written that at that time liars club no i that little snippet you read when i was 10 years old ah when i grew up i didn't remember that i wrote the liars club and then i found the notebook sort of after i had written it and included it in there uh but i didn't remember that I was ten years old. I mean, and I was—I wrote *Liars Club*. I was forty when it came out. So, and then you found, oh, this is who I always was. Yeah, but you had forgotten. You think? Well, I knew I wanted to be a poet, and I knew that I was obsessed with memoir. You know, like Pablo Neruda's memoir. I mean, I just always read biography. And, and let me just know. say those books that you just mentioned. Um, stop Time is a book. Every you said his name, but I just want to give books to people. Oh, stop so Stop Frank Time Conroy. by Frank Conroy is incredible. And he even wrote a novel before he died uh, that three quarters of which is just really amazing. It doesn't quite end the way Body the one with Body and Soul. Yeah, right. That there's but but uh, if there are writers listening. 
there in about in the middle of that book, um, there's a description of Frank Conroy's character. The character, it's not him, but um, the 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 protagonist, who's a, a composer piano pianist, playing with a symphony, and it's one of the most the first time he he has a symphony play along with him is one of the most gloriously written things about music and about art and about what happens when other people become involved with your art in a good way that I've ever read in my life. It stayed with me for 25 years. That's a beautiful. I haven't looked at that book in. 25 years yeah but you still it's still resonant it's so true and stop time's even better oh stop time's better is by a fact and, and black boy richard richard wright you know native son is taught more but but if you go back and read black boy it feels like it was written yesterday in ohio 1945 it came out i think it started the memoir craze i personally think that that if you I mean, I've obviously thought about this for... I've been teaching this since I was at Tufts. 1985, I was teaching at Tufts uh, when you were matriculated, however. I was a sophomore that year in 85. I remember. Yeah. I remember you waddling around. Yeah, sure. With Marie Howe, the poet Marie Howe, my friend, yeah. Oh, I love Marie Howe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes, we definitely hung out together. Thanks for saying I was waddling. But um, you were gliding. I would have <laughs> well, said no, you were gliding. No, some waddle, were, no, some glide. No, you were. You were this. It's fine. You were this brilliant. Uh, uh, you were. You were an impresario even then. It's interesting. You That's were interesting. It's one of my favorite words. I love that word. I wanted to call a television show that impresarios, and I remember telling somebody in Hollywood, and they went, "Nobody here knows what that word means." <laughs> That's totally true, by the way. It was an agent who said it to me. Nobody knows. So I had to, that's it. I had to put it that away. That was it. It had to go. I had to put it away. It had to go. But you were saying you were, except Richard Wright, and you're saying you think that Black Boy started the memoir thing. You've studied this. You've thought about this a lot. It's the first bestseller. I mean, Booker T. Washington up from slavery, but he was a big political figure, you know, by an African-American. And it, it obviously had a political purpose. It began this thread, you know, that included Malcolm X and Maya Angelou and all these uh, there were all these books in the 60s, Black Like Me, all these stories about African-American culture. Soul on Ice came by 1970, Eldridge Cleaver. But um, I don't know. There's something about that thread that but I think helped to fuel the civil rights movement. I mean, it gave you, know, you a people, window into african People look to Invisible experience. Man, and Invisible Man is a perfect novel Yes, uh, by is. Ellison. But, it, but, but to me, um, and often we'll say read Native Son and Invisible Man together, but I think what informs Invisible, I think that Black Boy and Invisible Man read together gives you this incredibly complete picture of right. the, in, in ter- in, the kind of the interior life of African Americans at a period of time, yeah, and Jim, I, Jim, yeah, in the Jim Crow years, and then you read "I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings" by well, Maya sure, Angelou. So, but before that, people who had best-selling memoirs were, you know, like I don't know Churchill. You know, it was somebody like there was some, you know, you're saying high, high of high birth or high accomplishment, as opposed to the memoir itself. Or big titties, right? <laughs> Churchill had all that probably if you think he was a big man, right? I mean, he probably was. He didn't uh, have the knockers you really want to look at, though. I don't think he did. You know, in this, why? Well, that's a very cisgender thing to say, Mary. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, did you say cisgender? You're going to hell. You're going to hell. I swear to God. Uh, I'm not. I'm going to hell. I mean, so, but. Um, you're the one saying Churchill's tits aren't great. I'm trying to give him some credit. I'm trying to say, listen, you, uh, but yes, you're saying memoir, memoir was more the terrain, um, 
of those who had uh, some kind of accomplishment that could be appreciated uh, externally. Right. And then when I was a, a graduate student, I met Frank Conroy, Jeffrey and Tobias Wolf, and Ray Carver. Obviously, all of Ray's fiction was autobiographically informed. But I remember Jeffrey Wolf saying, comparing, likening writing a memoir to inscribing a grain of rice with the Lord's Prayer. I mean, it's the province of, outs- it's outsider art. It's weirdos and nitwits. And, and you're just doing it for, I mean, what that, that idea implies is you're doing it for yourself and only yourself. Nobody's going to see what you write on the grain Which of rice. Which would be great if you didn't publish it. That's true. Right. And that's called, you know, therapy. And you pay them for that. And then when you write something, though... They're supposed to pay you. So you're supposed to think about other people. Right. And I'm saying, well, that's interesting. Um, uh, the, the danger with memoir, when it became sort of after your book, a, a, a fad again, a lot of people rip memoir for being just self-indulgent. Well, but how many, and, but, but, but how many crummy novels are there? I mean, re, you know, there are 8 billion crummy, I mean, go into any, nobody blames Don DeLillo for the terrible Harlequin romances that come out by the by the shipload. And yet everybody blamed Tarantino for all the bad crime films that came out. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> everybody blames me for all the crime so, memoirs. Right. You feel right. you feel that you are the one when for all those well yeah because for you they would then sit I mean they they would just say all these women writing memoirs and they would right. really pin a very specific thing on you in a way. Right, Back or then. women writing memoirs, or women, you know, writing about their feelings, you know, and then you look at Nausgaard as now this big, you know, this lauded, exalted uh, human being writing the about his domestic life of taking care of his children. You think if a woman had done that, it would have this incredible intellectual cachet that now... They well, you, but your work did and does have that. I mean, I don't... I don't know about that. I think mine is for, like, you know... I mean, I, believe me, I've done way better than I expected to do. Let me just say that. I've sold more books and I've made more money and I, you know, I have a job. I'm not working at the brewery. I don't live in this trailer. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by DraftKings. Football starts this Sunday, but at DraftKings.com, it's already time for the big game. $10 million in prizes are up for grabs in the biggest one-week fantasy football contest ever. That means every play in every game could take you closer to a life-changing payday. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Use promo code MOMENT at DraftKings.com to play for free for your shot at the $2 million top prize in this Sunday's Millionaire Maker event. That's MOMENT for free entry now at DraftKings.com. When, but when you so when you were forty and you were about and you started writing that book or you were thirty nine and you started in, writing the book, I was thirty seven. Yeah, I know you're saying it was. I mean, you're saying it's financially motiv- motivated because I'm, I'm asking about this need to self mythologize. But I'm I'm sort of but I wondering about as you tell the story. What I'm wondering about though is the need to use autobiography, not just written autobiography, but the need to use our story to connect. That's what I'm because that's I think what this book you're you're helping people to do that with art of mem, the art of memoir. Where do you think did you always have that? I understand your dad. You've written about it that you're. I think but, I, I think I did. I think I have a. I think I had a a big inner life. I was a little nerd ball, readerly bookish, skinny, unfortunate thing. Uh, you know they 
threw dirt balls at me and like beat the shit out of me when I was a kid. Not that I they weren't provoked, by the way. I was plenty mouthy. So they were often richly provoked. But um, I think we all have the sense. I mean, that's why I think the art of memoir is not just for somebody wanting to write a memoir. It's for anybody. I mean, don't you want to make sense of your life? Don't you? This wanna... is what I'm asking about. Why do we need to do that? Do you think? Because otherwise, I mean, if we were really Zen, Phil Jackson Zen about it, you know, we would live in the eternal now and like the Dalai Lama and stuff would go through us and we would be endlessly present. But there's often a discrepancy between what happened to us in our past and who we are now. And as I say in the book, we don't so much absorb experiences, we beam it onto the landscape. You know, you have a filter, you have this self, yourself, your ego, your identity is a filter through which you you apprehend the world. So this is a form of synthesis for you. It's, it's a way to not be nuts. So people who think of, of memory as like a narcissistic act, um, Obviously, it's anybody who writes anything is narcissistic. You cannot sit alone in a room with your own head. But that's different than being a narcissist, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. We I wonder. But, but, well, because an argument that I uh, often advance, and it's something that I've noticed, is that if you're somebody who, who feels the need to do this stuff and you don't do it, you become toxic to yourself. I think so. And then toxicity splashes onto the people around you who you love. And You're so a dick. It's, you, you become, become a, dick. a dick. And so by doing the work, you actually, even if it feels sometimes narcissistic... Uh, it's actually the way to be more selfless to those that's who you right. love, right? To I mean, that's what you're trying to, that's and that's what you're trying to communicate in this book to right. people. It's, the, it's, it's also, you've got to be aware of, enough of yourself of what's pushing around inside you. You've got to have some gap between But is your, there a danger also, I wonder this, and I wonder this for you, someone who's made her mark, her living, become celebrated for... Writing about her life. Showing her tits to everybody. Just sure. say it. Showing your tits. to Put your shirt back on, Mary. <laughs> you and my wife are friends. Put your fucking shirt back on. I'm going to tell her. But no, uh, how do you not, how do you avoid stepping back um, and being distant from life as you're living it and just looking through that lens? Um, oh, through the writerly lens? Looking through the, even more than the novelistic lens, looking through the memoirist's lens where you're like, oh, I can, I'm going to use this. I can use this. Oh, I can step back from this so I don't have to get crushed by it because I can deconstruct it and I'm going to write about it and use it. Like, does that yeah, happen see, to you or not? Yes. Usually I write about stuff that's happened so far after it's happened. I mean, I even say, I mean, other than Dave Eggers, you know, most people should give themselves a little time and have a little hair on them and be a little older before they undertake doing a memoir. Um, you know, as opposed to, you can't be, you can't write about your divorce in the middle of your divorce, but you become that guy at the bar. You know, you don't want to be that person on the page. Or, or if you do, you don't want to publish it. For me, I, I have this great amnesia that I ever wrote those books. Like, I kind of don't remember those books. Like, people say to me, oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, did I write about that or did I tell you that? Like, I don't remember. And what what does that so what does that feel like when people come up to you and the things I was thinking about? The, you, did you ever read Paul Oster's book Leviathan? Didn't. It, it's it's um to me it's like his last great book. Um, not that he couldn't write another great book, but it's the last I think really great book that he wrote, and it, it deals pretty heavily with um, uh, an author's the fan sort of like a, a reader's 
emotional engagement with a writer. How do you deal with people feeling like they know or own a piece of, of, of you and that it's written I, for them? I have made a game of it. I've made two games of it. When I first went on the road for the Liars Club, I thought I was going to play. I found myself, I think it's Ian McEwen said, being on a book tour is like being an employee of your former self. That's awesome. Yeah. And and so you're, it's so shameful. You just go from room to room and you say the same thing over and over to different human beings. And you just feel like a phony. And yet you're oddly proud of yourself. It's like a really horrible Sounds like it would be great if you're if you've never done it, but it, it, you come home and you're bedraggled and unfortunate, and your family hates you. But um, I would play a game with people where when they would ask it, literally when people interviewed me, I would I would try to talk as little as possible about myself. It was like a game. So they would say, "Well, did your mother freak out?" Well, no. This is what my mother said. Why do you think this was so interesting to you? And I would try. To get people to you would try tell to jujitsu it. I, I would try to jujitsu it. I would try to get people to tell me their stories, and that the gift of having written these books is people tell me the most intimate stuff. I never have to have small talk. People come over, you know, if they've read the books and they say, you know, you know, well, you know, you were raped as a child. You know, I mean, tell me about that, and then they tell me these amazing stories that are really. Moving. And you want that intimacy with those. You want that intimacy? I, you take it on as part of your burden? Which is it? It's not a burden. It's, um, it feels like it makes my heart bigger. So you're present there. You, you engage fully when that's happening. When that's happening, I'm not thinking about myself. I'm, I stop thinking about myself. And I start thinking about them and their story. And it's, there's a strange freedom in that. Do you breathe it out when you leave? I'm thinking, it's the second time I've mentioned this, and I didn't go see it, with the artist Marina Abram, Abramovic. Um, you know, when she did the, the thing and then when people could look at her and she would kind of take on their emotional heft. Mm-hmm. But then there was this, you would see her kind of get rid of it. Uh, or do you get rid of it? Do you yeah, carry it? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's not my, didn't happen to me. I have my own problems, but I mean, it's, and the other thing I did, which is what led to this book, is I would talk about other memoirists. I would talk about Michael Hare's Dispatches, or Catherine Harrison's The Kiss, or Maxine Hong Kingston's Woman Warrior, or Nabokov's Speak Memory, or, you know, I would talk about these other great books, and and try to educate people about the genre, that it doesn't have to be this kind of unfortunate thing. It can be, it can be art, you know, it can be actual literature. And at its best, it is that. Yeah, no argument. I mean, I have no argument with you on that. I, I agree with that. Um, all those people you named, I haven't read all those books, but I've read many of those books, and I've read those authors. Um, what, I, what I often wonder about, especially with memoir, because everybody believes they have a story to tell on some level. Everybody does. Well, that's, an, that's a great thing to say, but I've been in social settings with you and I could see you uh, tearing across a room to come over to me to be like that person's so fucking boring they won't <laughs> shut up with their story that's not really an interesting story to tell I mean we're like People, yes you could find it yes because you're a great writer Mary you could unearth the story in somebody but what about the writer that doesn't have... Tell me, go ahead. It's not the events. It's people imagine that a great memoir is made up of the most spectacular events. I, yes. And if that were true, every Holocaust survivor would have a bestseller. 
And and obviously there's Ellie Wiesel with Night. There's Primo Levi with Survival. Victor Frankel. Two Victor Frankel, Man's Search for Meaning. Three of the great seminal memoirs. And there is Holocaust literature. Jersey Kaczynski. Jersey Kaczynski, Painted Bird. There are, there is a literature of witness. However, not everybody who's had these horrible experiences. So it's. I agree. It, this is what I'm asking. There's a weird. But I'm asking about talent. Like I had Jerome Charon on the other day, who's this great um, American writer. I don't know if you, you know him. He's written like 50 books. But he wrote a memoir. He's written three memoirs of his childhood in, in the Bronx growing up. But he also wrote a book about his life as a ping pong player. I love it. And it's fucking amazing. Well, it's like Murakami's called, book about running. Well, that's, that's my favorite memoir. Isn't that a great book? Pretty much ever written. Yeah, it's yeah. a great book. Because as somebody who collects stuff about writing, it's why I can't wait to read uh, Artem. Like that is, that's my favorite stuff, and to me, that's the best book about writing I've ever read. It's so really good. Right? What's book. it called? Yeah. What I talk about when I talk about running. Such a good title. Yeah. Well, playing off of your guy Carver's. Playing off uh, Ray. Yeah. Right. I mean, he had right. the, that's playing off of that. But to, to me, um, when you read the ping pong book by by Charon, what, you're, what I'm struck by is uh, there's no story there. Um, it, the story is just because he's able to um, make available to us, the reader, what he was thinking and feeling and the things he was thinking and feeling as he was getting into this and his own curiosities and obsessions become ours while we're reading that book. Well, what, yeah, yeah, what, so tell me, when you're doing this now... What, what I say in The Art of Memoir is you have to... And I think this is true, by the way, for television, for fiction, for acting, for opera, for... Plumbing. I think, it, you know, you have to find a talent for your talent. What is your nature? I wanted to be T.S. Eliot, but I didn't go to the Sorbonne and study philosophy and get a master's degree. I pronounced it the Sorbonne. And uh, and I was a high school and college dropout and was a big, you know, had no academic you professor. You that's also, a, you know, you were, you were, I mean, you, were, auto you were a drunk, so a you drunk had, I mean, you were a drunk, so you got a little waylaid. <laughs> I, I spent, I snorted some cocaine too. I mean, I had my little adventures. Uh, now, gladly, 25 years gone. However, invariably, and I see it in, with our fiction writers and our poets, as I've been te- at Syracuse, where I've been teaching for 20 some odd years, is that the, the smart kid wants to act like a badass. Uh, George Saunders writes about coming to graduate school at Syracuse and Ray Carver and Tobias Wolf were there and, and he drove a pickup truck and wore a cowboy hat. George was the prom king. I mean, George in Chicago. I mean, George is this handsome, blonde, surfer-looking guy. Imagination out the wazoo. If you listen to this show and you haven't read 10th of December, like, stop. Go get Mary's book, but then don't do anything else until you read Saunders' book, 10th of George, December. You've got to have George Saunders on. He's uh, any, so, he's, anytime he's, he wants. He's, he's, that's the best he, book. I mean... The, the title story is the best story written I maybe in the past five years. But anyway... Oh, I think the better story... I think there's a better story right in that book. I think Semplica Girls is like my favorite short story of the last long time. I think... I think... I'm not going to argue that's a great... Okay. Anyway, great story. Do you read his stories early? I do. I mean, I read that in me. Do you give him notes? Uh, No. No, George rewrites things 800 times. Well, then do you give him... when he does he? Where do you see them in the process? No, no, no. He doesn't show me... He doesn't show you in progress anymore, like, at this point. We show each other stuff at the end. That's what I'm asking. At the end. I mean, when you've got a thing. We might show each other stuff that thing, but I, I mean, George is such a maestro. I mean, he doesn't need the likes of me. I might say, you know, you've got a comma blender here, you know, but what am I going to say to George about writing? But, 
imagine, so here's this guy whose mind works like Isaac Babbles or Garcia Marquez or somebody like a fabulous imagination. And he's trying to write dirty realism. I mean, it's like trying to put Marquez into Hemingway's clothes. So invariably, you'll have the slutty girl who tries to write like she's a goody two-shoes, and you have the goody two-shoes trying to write like she's a hoe. And you have, I mean, think if Maya Angelou had written I Know Where the Cage Bird Sings as though she were a light-skinned black girl in the Jim Crow South, or if, if Helen Keller had written as though she were only nearsighted. You're talking about authenticity. Yes, and, and finding your true story, your true court, which is in a way being in touch with an older self. Yeah, Pendulette taught me this quote by Thelonious Monk. Oh, so and the quote is, it's, I don't know the quote from Monk, I know it from, from Penn, but the, but the quote is, uh, the genius is the one who's the most like himself. Yes. But it sounds like that's what you're saying, is that... Yeah, I mean, like, my students, I teach speak memory. Everybody wants to write like Nabokov. You teach what? Uh, Big memory, you said? Speak memory. Oh, speak memory, yeah. Yeah, Nabokov's memory. Oh, yeah, I didn't understand speak, what you were saying. comma, memory. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm a, I've had too much... I snorted too much coffee this morning. Yeah. Um, but it's very a feat. It's a... He knows nine languages. He writes in seven of them. You know, he's... He's uh, upper class. He writes in these gilded rooms and does these little lacy interiors. That if I spent that kind of time describing the interior, but he sets up an emotionally urgent reason for doing that. The, the reason he's doing that is his world was blown apart. He, he and his family had to flee Russia. They lost their millions of dollars. They, they stopped being, I mean, never stopped being an aristocrat because he was count suck on this or whatever, um, because he had that lineage and he grew up that way. But he, he says and does terrible things. I mean, really, he has a kid, he has a brother he, who is like a footnote, is literally a, a whole brother. Is that a footnote. Is yeah, it, that it book. says, yeah. you know, I feel the only sentence he says is, I feel it, I, feel, uh, I find it inordinately hard to talk about my brother. Uh, I bullied him. I was the coddled, adorable one. I was the elder one. You know, he was a crap tennis player. That line comes like two chapters later. Oh, yeah, he died in a concentration camp. Probably he was gay, it turns out. You get that from other sources. If a normal person dismissed a whole member of their family that way, if I, who write about heart and from feeling and blah, 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 blah. But that's not what the business, Nabokov is in the Nabokov business. So he sets up an emotional reason that unless he can recount in this vivid, luxurious detail, it's like all those people are dead. That all makes sense to me. We're, and by the way... Um, I'm just going to say this on the show because I, I I always talk about the things I've read. I've never read that book, so yeah. um, I have to read that book. Well, I've the, never it's read it. It's a great book. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, it's one of those things. But Lacuna, it's I've just never read it. You um, start writing about it's like people who try to write like David Wallace and use all those footnotes and use all those references. I mean, David was a just total nerdball. I mean, you know, he made straight A's and straight A pluses right. in college at Amherst. Straight A pluses. Never made less than an A plus. I mean, forget about. And he was reading philosophy at Harvard when I met This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. Look, if you are listening to this show and you're an entrepreneur and you're a mobile app developer, and I know a lot of you are, check out Braintree. Braintree is the payment solution used by 
giants, Airbnb, Uber, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, Munchery. You don't even think about it when you use these apps, but somebody has built the entire payment experience and they've made that experience seamless and magical. And now you can add a similar experience to your own app for your customers. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, and more, all with a single integration across all platforms with superior fraud protection, customer service, and fast payouts. To learn more, and for your first 50000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash moment. Okay, but you bring up Wallace, uh, and uh, you've opened the door, so I'm now going to walk through it. Which is to say, you wrote a, this you know, magnificent poem about him, but I can't find anything else that you've really... Yeah, I write about him in Lit. I just don't. Uh, I, I, I think I do name him David. I just don't say he's David Foster Wallace. But he's, he was still alive. Uh, no, or yes. He? And he was disguised. And, but I was in touch with him. I told him I was going to write about him. And I was going to send him the pages. And he killed himself. Right. Before you finished. Yes. You were writing while he was alive. And yeah, then and then what I was going to do, I was going to disguise him so he was just some writer guy. Yeah. And then I thought, after he died, well, what the fuck? You know. Yes. I just thought, you know, I mean, it's not it's not an intimate portrait by any, by any means. I mean, we were both trying to get sober in Cambridge at the same time. Later, we dated. Yeah, and um, you certainly have told the stories about his sort of... Uh, obsessive feelings about you. David was intense. David was, I mean, he was a lot younger than I was. He felt a lot younger. I mean, he was really only, I don't know, seven, ten years younger than I was, but he he felt very young uh, when I'm, I mean, I was a single mom with a kid. You know? Right. And he was like a little kid almost, you know, who'd been going to different graduate schools and, you know. And, and where do you come out on the um, the reframing of him as Saint David? Yeah, I mean that's now even become like the I was yeah, but the the sort of reframing uh, uh, like to those of us who didn't know him, I met him twice, but I didn't know him. You know, as I said the other day, he he, uh, I really did feel like he was the person out there in the world going and finding stuff and bringing it back to me. That's just what it felt like being so great. younger than him and, and seeing. You would love that. It, that's just what it felt like. You would love that. Everybody felt that way. Everybody who read him felt that way. Yeah. yeah. Did you recognize? But did you recognize it right away in him? Um, everybody recognized his talent and his intelligence. Um, I have a very different sensibility than David, so I was somebody who was more critical of David than most other people. Like you think that's what he liked? I don't know. I mean, if I had. I didn't read Infinite just till he died. Why? I had been told at one point by his editor that I was in it. Right. Did you find yourself in there? I I didn't. And I said to his editor after he told me that, make it go away. And he said, well, why don't I send you the manuscript and you can take yourself out? And let me just say something about how that conversation went. I had read an excerpt of it somewhere. And he had written about people who told stories in 12-step meetings and used their real names. Not their real last names. Yes. Ah. And I called, I ran into his editor at my agent's house at a party and I said, you know, 
he shouldn't do that. It's not really, he should either contact those people or it's not that hard to change somebody's name or the color of their hair or fictionalize it. And he said, you know, now that I meet you, there's a character in there from Texas that blah, 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 blah. And I said, you know what? He said, I'll send you the manuscript. I said, no. I said, make it go away. Make her from Arkansas. Make her blonde. I don't care. I don't want to be, I don't want to mess up his book. I don't want to be involved. But I just didn't, I just didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And then when I read it, I mean, to me, a lot of the best parts were nonfiction, were completely nonfiction, were totally autobiographical. And the parts that I found most tedious and pretentious and boring and that I would have cut, all that Quebecois stuff, it's just boring. Everybody I know read it, skimmed it. And I think if he had cut that stuff, that would have been a better book. And I know you're not supposed to say that. It's like say Saint, whatever you want. Say St. David, blah, 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 blah. But David had an idea about himself, and he was in love in some way with his own cleverness. With I mean, clever do you, would you, so you would have preferred the, I mean, I think the short story, to One me. One of the stories he threw away. Okay, here's the story I pulled out of his wastebasket. was a story called Forever Overhead. Yeah. About a kid turning 12 and diving off a diving board. And he said, it's corny, it's sentimental, it's a piece of shit. I said, this is one of the best stories you've ever written. You have to send your agent this story. He wrote it, I want to say he might have even written it in graduate school or shortly thereafter. There's another story in Girl with Curious Hair about driving around with the girl's picture under the phone, which, what great story. Yeah, that's a staggeringly great so all the stuff about the fried roses in the Keith Jarrett concert and all that is just like it's just too cute but so for you to me the 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 more true version of stuff is no I don't mean I I disagree no that's not true well it feels like you're saying I mean you're certainly saying in that book no I'm saying that the nature of David's talent my personal opinion yes that's what I'm asking you yeah my personal opinion the nature of David's talent was much more autobiographical than people know. So, in the fiction and in the nonfiction, yeah, you think? Yeah, George Saunders, there's nothing autobiographical about anything he writes, but that's the nature of his talent. Don DeLillo, then is a good friend of mine, nature of his talent is fictional. But so if you're born, this is what I was going to, this is what I was getting to, is that these people that we're talking about, that you're talking about, and I'm going to include you in it, they're towering talents, and so I the love, que- that's me. I just I love but, being here. I'm never going away. Good, but they are. Take yourself out of it. The rest of those people are towering. They when you when one reads them, one comes away with the sense of a um, an incredibly alive intellect, a, a huge emotional availability on the page, and so of course uh, to your point of um, you don't have to have lived. An, advent, an incredibly um, outwardly adventurous life to write something that reads that way in well, memoir. Think, but what about the person um, who doesn't have literary talent? Or do you think anybody can... This is why I guess my question is when I think about books like this, right? Because it's, it's unusual for someone as accomplished as you to write some version of a how-to book. It's not really a how-to book. Well, of a... Of the 200 pages or whatever... There's probably 35 pages of how-to. So, and there, it's kind of peppered in so you can skip pole vault over it. It's, you like, don't I have think to Stephen King's it. book's a great one on that. Uh, on writing, I think it's a fantastic book. Mentions me, the first sentence. Yeah. My favorite part of it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, you're in his band. But I wasn't he, then. No. I'd never met him. Oh, you met him after oh, met he him wrote at, On Writing? 
Oh, yeah. That's when I met him. See, he's a great... Me- I think he is a I think great a, memoirist. I think he's a great fiction writer. Me too. I think he's a great fiction writer. I, I put The Shining on one of the hundred... The Stand. I put those books on like the hundred great novels of the 20th century. I think he is our Dickens. I think he is... You're speaking to somebody who completely agrees with you. I, his formative... Enormously formative for me... Um, one of the great minds for story. No better mind for story. But here's the question. Who's your book for? Who's this book for? This book is for, I mean, this book is for somebody who has a big inner life and is interested in, in reconciling how their memories differ from other people's memories, um, being more aware of how they distort their memories, over how your memories change over time. You know, I mean, you know, you're crying over some, you know, Billy Carl Cash in the eighth grade, and your mother says, you'll laugh about this later. The reason you laugh about it is because you're not the same person. If you were that eighth grade person, you'd still be, we'd be screaming our whole lives. Yeah, you know what this makes me wonder, though? Because the thing you said even about all this, about having to go back or having some distance... I was wondering, like, if you had Facebook and Twitter back then so that you could, as stuff was happening to you, have kind of broadcasted and then not felt like there was no one you could talk to in the little world you were in, but in fact could connect. Do you think you would have had the need? I would have had one follower. Do you know who my my followers are? They're all people with one follower. (laughs) That's All my great. followers have on like Twitter? everybody who follows me on Facebook and Twitter has like five followers. I mean, I follow you, and I have uh, a couple <laughs> you know, more than you have five tens of thousands, more than five thousands. followers. No, but I'm serious. I mean, I would have been. Yeah, I could have put everything on the feed, but it would have been me trying to sound like T.S. Eliot. It wouldn't be because you hadn't found your voice. So does this exactly. you that so so because this is a big question, voice. And I guess that's part of this question of mythology. I've got a whole chapter on it on finding voice. Well, I say that voice. Voice makes or breaks a memoir. Sure. I think it might make or break anything, but it makes or break memoir. And I think it's like the big bandwidth cable that carries every pixel. You know, all the information gets packaged in a voice. Yes. And I've spent nine months working on the voice for the Liars Club. How? What does that mean, working I on the voice? I literally, I worked on the first chapter for nine months. That's So, in, in, in other words, finding the the the... The means of carrying the message, meaning finding the meter, tone, and the kind of vocabulary you could use? Yes. Is that how you... Because yes. people ask me this voice question all the time. Okay. Well, people, if you look in the writing books, it says it's syntax, with, you know, the way sentences are constructed, diction, the kinds of words you used, and tone, which is the emotional feeling. Those are the only three elements. Say them again. Diction, kind of vocabulary you use, and most... 90%, 95% of people need to just use short words. That's just, I mean, Stephen King says that in his book. Uh, diction, um, but also to not use jargon, to not use, to not, I never say my parents are alcoholics. Everybody says my, I talk about upending their vodka bottles, you know, down You mean jargon, you're saying cliche, because jargon is, di- yeah, I exactly. mean, jargon is, uh, exactly. Saunders and Wallace use a lot of jargon. Right, right. You mean, but they don't use and sort of Stephen as, King. But you're saying don't use cliche or... Well, no, you have to unpack it, I think. I think you have to make the experience particular to your voice. Yeah, don't rely on... Because the other thing about having a very particular voice is you're constantly reminding the reader it's your point of view. Wait, diction, tone, 
and syntax, right. the order the sentences are put in. So that sounds so simple, but I spent on a you know twenty page chapter. I spent nine months. I mean, nine months, you know, three hours a day, sometimes 10, 12 hours a day. I mean, I could have made more money on a deep fat fryer just on the on that one chapter. Well, that's crippling to people sometimes, right? That is. I hated it. I'm saying that can be crippling because. Yeah. But there was a moment where I felt like I was putting wheels on a car, and there's a moment where the car started to move down the road, and it almost happened over like a two or three day period. Because some people think, and, and some accomplished writers talk about that the first draft you should just blow through it and then in the second draft you should try to find the voice well, where do you because people that's what this Stephen perfection King is, does well, yeah I mean so the, there's King this does. idea of um, that by by searching for the, the voice to be nailed um, you can thwart your, your, your demons can kind yes, of take over so how right. do you fight that well I'm a poet right. that's the nature that's of what are. I do. No, you know, my Amy, whose book, you poet. love her She's new book. Super, super uh, Hesitation Wounds. And Hesitation Which is coming out in October. And super she takes poetic. eight, nine years because every single sentence is collapsed and crushed. And it's, you know, you she have won't Amy have on. a... Sp- Why don't you have your wife on? Of course I'm going to have her on. I'm, di- I'm dying to have her on. I, is this that? Yeah, of course. I mean... I think no. you should have her on and you don't say anything. Just quietly let her interview herself? <laughs> I do that? She's so good. I think that's a terrific book. I think that's a terrific book. It is. Well, it's you, very poetic, very smart, very dark, funny, scary. And, and yes, she takes eight, nine years to write these books because they're, she's thinking about every single word. But I think for some people that is... That's who she is. ...crippling. They can't. They, they will never write anything then. So do, but do you think that all... Like, you think anyone trying to write a memoir has to have the voice locked in from the start? No. And that's I what I'm asking it, you. No, I'm saying I think it's the nature of your talent. Stephen King is a storyteller, so he has to get the story mapped out. Ah, so he does brilliant. the first... Yeah. So he does the first draft first because the story is the, is the string that he puts the pearls on, Right. And for me, I've got to be making the pearls. That's the nature of my interest. My little lapidary work is what I do. That's what I can do. Mood, tone, feeling you're trying to lock in on. I'm trying to make people feel something. That's my goal. It's my big goal. I'm not trying to dazzle them with what's happening. And it's also the great memoirs usually are great about interiority. You know, there's... Frank Comrie has that great line at the beginning of, of uh, he's writing about being in high school. He's like, you know, something about standing in the fridge door. You know, I upended the quart of milk and, the, you know, the air from the fridge falls out on his bare feet and he leaves an inch for his stepfather's coffee, shuts the fat fridge door, end of breakfast. And it captures in that little paragraph that feral adolescent male, the hunger of that tall, skinny kid standing in the fridge door and, you know, living alone with his stepfather in this New York apartment. His mother's abandoned them. What told, okay, what told you when you were taking all those months to write that first paragraph that it was worth it? Because what kept, what told you, don't don't say I need the money, like really, what told you it was worth it? I didn't have anything else to do. I mean, I would have just watched TV all the time. You were like Richard Gere, an officer and a gentleman. <laughs> I have nowhere else to go. Yeah, <laughs> this is the Luke Gossett, right? Is that the line of Luke Gossett Jr.? I have nowhere, to, I have I have nowhere, nowhere else, else to go. go. Sort of and like then they that. let they let him back yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. 
So you had nowhere else to go. But do you think an artist has to have, I guess, do you think that, an, that, that at some point, in order to make that first sort of breakthrough as an artist, I don't mean breakthrough that others recognize, but that you have to have a sense of desperation? Like, do you think artists... It seems like we all do, doesn't it? Yeah. Don't you feel desperate? When the, I mean, often right before the best work, there's a sense Always. of anger or desperation, a need... Frustration, fury, irritation, certainty of failure. And then I... Terror, you, blind terror. Yeah. yeah right. uh, you have to be able to sit through that. That's the hard part. What do you think is the difference between people who have that stuff and can do... Like, do you think, any, do you think anyone who... Appro- do you think anyone who's reasonably bright and approaches this with diligence and focus can do it? What I, do the years of teaching of, tell you? Here's what I think. Here's what I actually think. You know how we've all been on airplanes. I write about this in Art of Memoir. We've all been on airplanes where you sit next to somebody yammering about something and they're shallow and stupid and you fake that you're going to sleep. You just act like you're going to sleep because you can't stand it another minute. And and then there's somebody who's not particularly bright, not particularly articulate, some furniture salesman from somewhere, just Mr. Joe Sixpack, any Joanne Sixpack, anybody, who starts talking really out of the depth of how they feel about dropping their kid at college or being in love or having their heart broken or not getting the raise or promotion or, you know, anything. They're, somebody died. And you're just suddenly so moved. I think if those people had a way to represent what actually happened to them if they had the the tools right. to get to get that on i mean that's a framework the tools i mean you're you're talking about an idea that's emersonian it is right it's, it's an emersonian i mean but it's, it's an emersonian idea it's the sunshines today it's it's that within it's self-reliance it's that if you are courageous enough to name the thing that you're feeling yes that it, and occupy it will be and then occupy it it will be resonant yes and, and I, that's your I belief. Can't tell so you that's how your belief. How many times I've like, you know, walked. I used to work in, you know, I used to work in prisons and stuff. I used to be walking out, going, "Stay in touch." You know, I mean, I just, you know, people tell you these incredible, or, or just, you know, I, riding over here with with your producer. With yeah, the, with Jason. Your, Jason, your podcast producer. He said the most amazing thing. He said, you know, sometimes when I'm reading something really great, like George Saunders, I have to stand up. Oh, that's great. And I tweeted it, and I said. It's almost like he's giving a great book like a little one-person ovation. And I will I will tell you, Aim and I throw books around the apartment like that. We I know, do. right? We do. We go like, I, I will, I mean, it happens to me, you know, people who listen to the show know like my, um, my, my love for Murakami in a very different way than I love Wallace's stuff, but my love for Murakami is sort of strange, but I will read his books and I have to sometimes just, I do, I close them and I just like hold them. I, if I could eat, if I could put them right, right. into my chat, like That's for whatever what, reason, the tone with the thing you're talking, the very thing you're talking about, the, the tone, the rhythm, the, the, the way that he's able to show me how he sees the world. I, uh, well, it's it's like you close the book. I always say the Speak Memory, the Nabokov, or, or Dispatches, the Michael Hare book about Vietnam. I'm a Tim O'Brien guy for some reason. Yeah, well, that too. I, I'm, my, too. Dispatches is great, no, but too. if I had to choose one, I'm, 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 there you go. I'm dying with Tim O'Brien. I don't blame you. He's also a great book. But, you know, you close the book and you lift your face and the world looks different. Yes. You've changed your perceptual machine. You've strapped on their self somehow. And that particular voice 
is the machinery that makes that possible. And art, your art of memoir talks it, about how is you do how to how to the scaffolding to to do it, but right? also about how to mistrust. How to mistrust? I mean, I'm one of those people. What do you mean, how to mistrust? Well, I mean, I'm a very. I have a lot. People say it's so great that you send your manuscripts out to everybody to be sure that stuff you've written about people is true. And it's it's not because I'm trying to keep from being on Oprah, sweating and shaking like I, you know, Richard Nixon. It's because I doubt everything. I sort of look for evidence, you know, like it can't have been January because look, we have shorts on in the photograph. And so, so it wasn't you... January. So so I'm somebody I think most of the memoirists I know are compelled to figure out what happened in some horrible part of their lives for deeply personal reasons. You know, like Tobias Wolf, this boy's life. Uh, you know, I, I want I didn't know how to become a man. The book opens with him putting on all... The whole book is about these different costumes of manhood that don't fit him. The basketball uniform with the street shoes, the inherited Boy Scout uniform that his stepfather wore, sure. and then acting like a thug with the slick back hair and putting on all these costumes of manhood. It begins with him, you know, sort of watching men walk down the street and pretending they're his father. You know? No, it's a great... I mean, that's a great book. It's I know the great, book well. It's, it's a great it's book. It's a great yeah. book. And so... His stories are great, too. Oh, his stories. Bullet in the brain. Bullet in the brain is what I was going to say. The short... Okay. This is going to be hard for people to find. Okay, listen. No, it's not. It's not. It's it's in the night in question, which is a collected stories. Bullet in the brain. Yeah, but I'm going to say something, which is what's hard to find is a guy made a short starring Tom Noonan of Bullet in the Brain. That's one of my favorite shorts ever made. It is Tom Noonan, who you would know from the movie Manhunter or from Heat, um is stars in Bullet in the Brain, and it's How like short? a 12-minute movie or 14-minute movie, and it is absolutely perfect. Uh, if you know the story, you would understand how it ends. If you don't know the story, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but you don't see it coming. Uh, now, I know you, you, we have, there's so much I want to ask you. We, we are getting to the end of our time here, but um, but just to finish up, I was thinking about the poem um, that you wrote about Dave Wallace, and... Um, which one? I've written a couple. But. This line, Suicide Note and Annual. Um, okay. There's something about, in this poem, it's such a beautiful poem that I hate Thank almost. you. I, I just, I just, I was, you know, people got mad at me because I said that every suicide is an asshole. I didn't mean it that way. I What I, I meant was, I wish somebody I cared about hadn't killed himself. I mean, I, I don't know what other way to say it. I wish somebody, you know... Everybody cared about hadn't. Well, you speak to it in the poem. I mean, you you yeah, you mean, say it very clearly um, in the poem. You say, "And forgive my conviction that every suicide's an asshole." There's a good reason I am not God, for I would cruelly smite the self smith. <laughs> right. I'll go back and kill you, so you can't kill yourself. Yeah, it's fantastic. Bad. No, it explains your rage. But there's a line in this um, where you say, "I couldn't today name the gods you at the end worshipped, if any." Praise being impossible for the devoutly miserable. And screw my church, who'd roast in hell, poor suffering bastards like you, unable to bear the masks of their own faces. Yeah, I felt so sad. Where, do, where for you, because some, where, where for you as a Catholic does the profane fit? Well, I mean, the nature of Catholic, my Catholicism is kind of an... Tr- 
is twofold. It's trying to find God in everything. And it's realizing that we're all sinners. But it's a, to me, it's about, I read this great thing about, it always bothered me, you know, Jesus, you know, kind of the first thing he says is repent. And I was like, so the first thing you're supposed to do is start cudgeling yourself over every bad thing you do. You know, the truth is, you and I are going to do that anyway. We're going to cudgel ourselves anyway. And then I had this friend of mine explain it as it really means repent, rethink. Stop looking for happiness where you've been looking for it. Stop worshiping the wrong gods. Don't, you know, it's, you know, whether I have a show on Showtime or not is not going to determine my happiness on on the scale of good to bad. It might determine my bank account, but it's not really going to make me happy or not happy. Well, as the he's not Jesus, but as David Lee Roth said, <laughs> money can't buy you happiness, but it can sure make it easier to pull your yacht up next to it. Yeah, exactly. That's the gospel according to Diamond David Lee Roth. Diamond David Lee Roth. Yeah, not to you know, also a long, a man with long hair, right? Who was uh, doubted by a lot of people. <laughs> See, that's <laughs> you just you fell down. Respond to that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not really built for a response, but for, but for you, you're saying uh, forgive yourself. Like the repent thing is tied into. It's tied into. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about taking whatever suffering you're going. The whole Buddhist thing that we're all suffering and miserable because usually we're looking in the wrong places to be happy. Um, I have to say, you're um, you're an inspiration to so many people. You know, um, we didn't talk at all about courage because you refused to to own the fact that the thing you did, the way that you changed memoir, was every bit as uh, as powerful and big as the way you know uh, uh, people changed it in the '40s. I mean, you you did break through by um, being an, an intellectual who was willing to write about the lowest stuff you'd ever done without dressing it up with a lot of morals. Yeah, you, you don't remember when Patti Smith came out, but I did. But one of the great things about Patti Smith, you know, when you would see no, I was her, nine and 75, yeah. so I remember okay. a little bit. Well, I, I, I saw her. I saw her back then and, and uh, a couple times. And one of the great things about Patti Smith that I can honestly say is also true of me. Um, other than that we both wear a lot of black um, because we can't find anything darker. But um, is she's an enormous fan. I'm a big fan. You know, I'm a big fan of memoir. So that's that really is what I bring to the party. Right, and let the record state that once again, the jujitsu where I said, you're courageous, you changed the thing, and Mary Carr was like, oh no, I just like other people's memoirs, and Patti Smith is great. Oh, I just Texas girl, I'm just simple. I'm just a simple Texas girl, tell stories by the campfire. That's all all I am. Listen, you're a brilliant fucking person, and um, I I can't wait to get to read this whole book. uh, All right, I'm going to confess something, which is, um, I've never said this on the podcast, but I do mo- a huge amount of my reading in the bath. I know about this, and you wreck it. I read in the bath, and so I destroy books. books. So I, I, you gave Amy a book, and I said, I'm not going to take the book in the bath because it's signed. 
and then I go send me another one and you fucking sign that one too <laughs> so I can't take that one in the bath either I'll give you another one I you need can... a clean book without your goddamn signature well, sorry it. I said goddamn uh, oh to take, you. It, take it away doesn't matter I, I say goddamn all the time it's you a do? prayer it's a prayer okay good Mary Carr people buy and read this book also honestly buy Lit and Cherry and uh, Liars Club and the poetry books and buy the poetry of Marie Howe, too, while you're at it, because uh, po- everyone should buy poets, books. I wanted to ask you what you thought of Pam Houston, but we didn't get there, and um, a few other writers who matter a lot to me, because I think Pam does a really good job of uh, um, right in between memoir and yeah, fiction. Yeah, exactly. And she's very honest about it. Yeah. That's Ta- what, whatever you do, you, everybody sets the line for truth wherever it is. But, but in yeah. the end, you feel like if people can find, I guess this is what I want to leave with, because people ask me this question. As, what I'm taking from what you're saying is that if people have the tenacity or courage or whatever it is, or the honesty to uh, to do the work to find where their the, the, the truth of their experience is, you think they can do this. They can yes, write. Yes, I actually do, strangely enough. What an empowering note to end on. All right. Thank you, Brian Coffey. Thank you. When's the book out? September 15th. Book's out September 15th, which is like in a week from now. Um, when you're going to hear this podcast, so order it, pre-order it right now on right, Amazon, right this which helps Mary when the book comes out. Like I want pre-order nine cents. From pre-order it right now uh, from Amazon. And Mary Carr is on Twitter, and she doesn't care if you have one follower. In fact, most people <laughs> who follow her, all my followers have one. What follower. name are you under on there? Mary Carr Lit. Mary Carr Lit. Follow her uh, uh, on Twitter or or on Facebook or on Facebook or at marycar.com. There you can find her there too. I'm Brian Koppelman at Twitter. Uh, let me know if you dig the show, and um, you can also email me themomentbk at gmail.com. But don't, unlike Mary, I do not want to read your memoir. All right, <laughs> thanks everybody. See you next time.